You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Good afternoon, everyone. If you've got a Bible, you might like to open it. Um, alternatively, the reading today is on the welcome card, um, which you can find on the Darabin website. And we're reading from Matthew 26, uh, verses 57 to Matthew 27, verse 26. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, Two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, From now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him. You also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will uh, disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, said the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. it's coming through. I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for this, your word. Uh, And we do ask uh, that you would work in our hearts and minds through it this day, uh, that we might stand firm when our faith is on trial. Uh, For Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, Well, uh, if I'm brutally honest, uh, sometimes I feel like my life's a little bit like one giant courtroom. Or a courtroom in which I'm constantly on trial before other people. Uh, wondering to myself, oh, like, what are people going to think of this sermon? Or what are people going to think of how I led that meeting? Or that decision I made? Or, oh, gee, like, I wonder how people would rate how I went in that pastoral conversation. I hope no one saw me in that parenting moment because I really, I really bombed out right there. Right? Sometimes life does feel like one giant courtroom where we're constantly on trial before other people. Or at least that's how it feels for me. I'm sure most of you are psychologically much better adjusted than me uh, and you never struggle with such things. But maybe some of you can resonate a little to this sense of being on trial before others, being tested before others, uh, having a a really deep sense of wanting to get the, the verdict that you crave from other people. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Well, I don't know if you picked it up as Jared was reading the passage, but in today's passage, we've got four scenes where people are on trial before others. I see in verses 57 to 67, we've got Jesus on trial before the Jewish authorities. And then in the next section, we've got Peter on trial before uh, a couple of servant girls. Then in chapter 27, verses 1 to 10, tragically, Judas puts himself on trial and sentences himself to death. And then in the last part of the passage, uh, verses 11 to 26, we've got Jesus on trial before the Roman authorities. Uh, So first, let's take a look at that first scene where Jesus is on trial before the Jewish authorities, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. 
Uh, This is verses 57 to 67 of chapter 26. Uh, In Jesus' day, this group of Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin, uh, this was the highest court among the Jews. There were 70 Jewish leaders plus the high priest. So 71 people, if they were all there. Uh, You can see the subsections of the Sanhedrin in verse 57. If you take a look there, uh, there were the priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. Uh, Typically, the Sanhedrin would meet in the temple. Uh, But in this case, having last week, we saw that they've uh, sent their kind of temple guard to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. Uh, And so they're gathering in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, From the very beginning, it has a ring of being an impromptu kind of kangaroo court, if you like in the middle of the night. Uh, It's important to know that the Sanhedrin uh, had pretty broad legal powers in Jesus' day. Not like church leaders in there, like these guys had authority not just over Jewish religious matters, they had authority over some civil matters, some criminal matters as well. They actually were allowed to arrest people and try them as they do with Jesus here. They certainly weren't allowed to execute people. That was something that was left to the Romans, which is why Pilate gets involved later on. Now, when we look at Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities, it's really, really clear that his trial is completely unjust, probably illegal. I'll give you five reasons why. The first is uh, that Jewish law said that a trial that had a chance or the intention of leading towards a death sentence, that sort of trial had to be conducted during the day. Right? Because if you're going to decide to end someone's life, you kind of don't want to be falling asleep in the middle of the trial. Right? You've got to be giving your best attention to that. Uh, so this was written into Jewish law. Right? Not in this case. The Sanhedrin proceeds during the middle of the night. Uh, the second thing, if you look in verse 59, uh, you see that this court is looking for false evidence against Jesus so they can put him to death. Uh, so we know that, that a court, a just court is supposed to consider all the evidence before them and then reach their verdict. Not this court. This court has reached their verdict. They want Jesus dead. And now they're looking for any evidence that they can find to justify that outcome, even if it's false evidence. That's the second thing. The third thing is in verse 60. You see there that uh, they haven't found any evidence worthy of putting Jesus to death, uh, even though many false witnesses have come forward. Now, this is a big deal in Jewish law. If you look up later on, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, it says that for a trial to, to even get started, there have to be two verified true witnesses. So here what we've got is all sorts of false witnesses coming forward. The Sanhedrin should have stopped the trial immediately, but instead they press on until they can find at least a couple of people who have the veneer of speaking something true. Uh, fourth, take a look in verses 62 and 63. The high priest asked Jesus to defend himself. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't fulfill himself, uh, and that's partly because of a prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh, Rob actually read from it earlier, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 speaks about how God's suffering servant king will remain silent before those who accuse him. Why? Not because he's a kind of glutton for punishment, but because he knows that his mission is to give his life for the sake of the sins of the world. So on one level, Jesus has no need to defend himself here. He's resolved to head towards the cross. 
But whatever reasons Jesus has for not defending himself, the fact is that under Jewish law, the Sanhedrin should have provided Jesus with an advocate, a kind of friend in court, to speak on his behalf. They don't do that. Right? They leave Jesus to defend for himself. And fifth, uh, of course, ultimately, in verses 67 and 68, uh, you see that the members of the Sanhedrin, or either the members themselves or at least the, the guard that, that is kind of taking directions from the Sanhedrin, they beat Jesus, they slap Jesus, they spit on Jesus. Uh, I mean, imagine if we heard reports uh, of a judge, uh, a court in town, behaving in such a way. It's disgraceful. It's very clear that Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities is completely unjust. Having said that, there are a couple of charges that are brought against Jesus, specific charges that we should consider a little bit more deeply. The first is in verses 60 and 61. Jesus is charged with saying that he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, on one level, that charge is completely false, right? Jesus, uh, if you read back through Matthew's gospel, he never said that he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild it in three days. In Matthew 21, you can read it later on, uh, he did say, uh, he did condemn the temple. Uh, and then in Matthew 24, he did predict that one day the temple would be destroyed, but he never personally threatened to physically destroy the temple. Although there is a kind of sliver of truth in this, uh, because Jesus' coming does signal the end, as it were, of the temple in Jerusalem. It will make the temple in Jerusalem out of date, kind of obsolete, unnecessary. Uh, if you skim back through the, the previous chapters, you, you'll see in Matthew 21 uh, that when Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem, actually on the equivalent of this day, right, Palm Sunday, people waving palm branches, Jesus' triumphant entry, he goes straight to the temple and condemns the temple. Then later in that chapter, in verse 42, uh, Jesus tells these Jewish leaders based in the temple that he is the rejected stone that will one day become the cornerstone in God's new temple. Oh, on Good Friday, we'll hear in chapter 27, verse 51, that the, when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens in the temple? The curtain is ripped in two. Right, symbolizing the fact that from now on, if you want to enter the presence of God and have a relationship with God, it's not through the temple in Jerusalem, but through Jesus, through faith in Jesus' death on the cross. Oh, so in John 2, Jesus does say that he's going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Probably what these witnesses heard. But Jesus isn't speaking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. right? John explains that. He's speaking about his body. He's saying that his body is going to be destroyed on the cross. It's going to be torn apart on the cross for our sins. And then on the third day, it's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be resurrected to form the new temple, as it were, through faith in whom we can have a relationship with God. Uh, so previously, if you wanted to uh, enter God's presence, you had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Now you just go to Jesus. Right? Jesus is the new temple. Previously, when you went to the temple in Jerusalem, there were a whole lot of priests there. Right? It was the priests who mediated between God and people. Well, we don't have to do that anymore. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the one and only mediator that we need to have a relationship with God. 
And when you went to the temple, those priests were offering sacrifices, repeatedly offering sacrifices over and over again to secure forgiveness from God. Not anymore. Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, is our once for all sacrifice. His death on the cross secures forgiveness of sin for our past, present and future sins. You see what's going on here? Jesus is the new temple. Jesus never threatened to physically destroy the temple in Jerusalem. But his life and death and resurrection do represent a threat to the temple in that they make the temple out of date, obsolete, because now everything to do with the temple is fulfilled in Jesus. So that charge is completely false, although having a slither of truth from one perspective. And then what we've got is the charge in verse 65, uh, where uh, Jesus is charged with blasphemy. Uh, It seems that with all this talk of the temple being torn down and rebuilt, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, is drawn to think about the Messiah, God's promised, God's anointed king, uh, because the Jews expected that when the Messiah came, the first thing he would do was restore the temple. Uh, So in verse 63, Caiaphas says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And in verse 64, Jesus says, well, you have said so. Uh, Because uh, he's saying to Judas, he's kind of being affirming, he's saying, yes, I do mean you, Judas. But he's being a bit ambiguous, a bit cryptic, uh, because he doesn't want the other disciples to get it at that time. Uh, Likewise here, uh, I think Jesus is affirming enough to Caiaphas. So Caiaphas clearly gets that Jesus is saying that he's the Messiah. Uh, And so the ambiguity here is not so much uh, about whether Jesus is the Messiah or not, but it's about having a particular understanding of what the Messiah is or who the Messiah is. Uh, Jesus explains his understanding of the Messiah by referring to two passages from the Old Testament. So you'll see, first, he refers uh, to himself as the Son of Man uh, in Daniel chapter 7. Take a look there. He says, But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. We've referred to this passage from Daniel 7 a bunch of times in this section of Matthew. Uh, In Daniel 7, uh, God, the Ancient of Days, entrusts to uh, the Son of Man uh, an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. All authority in heaven and earth is given to this Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. I'm just not just a king of the Jewish people to coming to overthrow the political oppression of the Romans. I'm a king of all peoples. By coming to establish God's eternal kingdom. Right? Jesus has an understanding of being the Messiah that is far bigger than these Jewish leaders would have expected. And it's even bigger when Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, where he says, The Son of Man will be sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, uh, which is an allusion to Psalm 110, where David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand. You you see how Jesus is drawing these connections? Psalm 110 is is written by King David. uh, And so Jesus is saying, I am David's Lord. When David wrote Psalm 110, I was sitting at the right hand of God in glory. That's what Jesus is saying. I am David's Lord. Jesus is putting himself in a position that rightly belongs to God alone. He's claiming divinity. 
And you say, Aaron, you're just reading that into the text. Jesus never thought he was God. He never thought he was a, you know, divine in that way. But that's exactly what Caiaphas thinks, isn't it? That's why he accuses Jesus of blasphemy. Because Jesus is claiming a prerogative, a position that belongs to God alone. Now, of course, that would be blasphemous. If I said I'm God and you ought to listen to me, I speak with absolute authority, that would be blasphemous. But it's blasphemous because it's not true. It's not blasphemous for Jesus, for he is God in the flesh. Matthew said in Matthew 1.23, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So it's not blasphemous for Jesus to make this claim. This charge is false. I see, there's kind of an irony in this scene. Uh, in that the, the passages in Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, they have the, the kind of Christ figure in those passages coming back to judge all people. Uh, so here we've got the Sanhedrin presuming to be able to judge Jesus, to put him on trial, uh, and yet ultimately it's Jesus who will judge them. And so in that sense, this scene actually gives us a, a kind of vivid picture of the gospel, the, the, the good news of Christianity. Because the gospel tells us that in our sin, all of us are a little bit like the Sanhedrin. We all like to put ourselves in the position that belongs to God alone, uh, in the position of judge upon God and everyone else, and we put God on trial. Does God meet our standards? Should I trust God? Should I uh, bow the knee before God? We're, We're all a little bit like the Sanhedrin. We're all guilty of that. But the gospel also tells us that in Jesus, God puts himself in our position the position that we deserve on the cross, dying in our place for our sins. So as one commentator says, John Stott, he says, the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. The Jewish authorities put themselves in a position that that rightly belongs to Jesus, the position of judge. But on the cross, we'll see on Good Friday that Jesus puts himself in a position that rightly belongs to the Sanhedrin, the position of one who is guilty of sin. So in the next section, 69 to 75, we've got Peter on trial before these servant girls. And Matthew deliberately puts this story right here between Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities and before the Romans because he wants us to compare how Jesus and Peter respond when they're put on trial. So I want you to notice five differences and similarities between Jesus and Peter. The first is that both Jesus and Peter are questioned. Jesus is absolutely grilled by this kind of 70-strong Sanhedrin, And Peter's grilled by, well, a couple of servant girls, right? Like you'd think that Peter might be a bit more courageous. Not so much. A second, Jesus and Peter are both charged. The charges against Jesus, we've just heard, they're false. The charges against Peter are true. Like Jesus is one of, uh, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. A third, Jesus responds to his charges by declaring the truth. Peter responds to the charges brought against him by denying the truth. I'm not one of Jesus' disciples. Three times he says that. A fourth, you'll notice that Jesus and Peter are both in the presence of guards. 
Right back in verse 58, if you scan back, you'll see that Peter followed Jesus at a distance when he was arrested into the courtyard of Caiaphas the high priest and he sat down in the courtyard with the guards. Mark's gospel tells us that he's warming himself around the campfire. So picture the scene. Jesus is inside declaring the truth and being beaten up by the guards while Peter's outside in the, in, the, in the courtyard denying the truth and warming himself around the campfire with the guards, you know, with a marshmallow on or something. Like, thanks, Heather. I appreciate that laugh. <laughs> right? So, uh, so there's, there's four things. The fifth thing is that in both these situations, there are curses involved. Right? Jesus is wrongly cursed by the Sanhedrin. Uh, Whereas Peter's so passionate about disowning Jesus that he calls down curses on those who are accusing him. You see, the contrast's pretty clear in this passage, right? Peter is put on trial and he fails dismally in comparison to Jesus. Uh, So in verse 75, the end of the passage, uh, Peter hears the rooster crow and he's absolutely gutted, isn't he? He's devastated. He weeps bitterly. In particular, but because he remembers the events of the previous hours, his bold declarations, I'll never let you down, Jesus. And Jesus' prediction back in verse 34 that he would disown him three times before the rooster crows. So once again, we've got this idea of substitution, don't we? Of swapping places. Jesus, the innocent one, dies in the place of Peter, the guilty one. And then we continue with this courtroom theme in the start of chapter 27 uh, where Judas tragically really tries himself and sentences himself to death. Uh, If you look at verses 1 and 2, it it seems like the Jewish leaders had their kind of impromptu, somewhat unofficial hearing in the middle of the night where they condemned Jesus to death. Uh, But then they knew they had to formalise things a bit. And so early in the morning they gather in the temple, all more official, to rub a stamp the idea that they need to execute Jesus. So they do that. Uh, They're taking Jesus off to be executed and Judas sees this in verse 3 and he's seized with remorse. Uh, That word remorse is not the same as repent. Uh, The the point is, I think, that that Judas feels really bad about what he's done, but he's not necessarily repenting of what he's done. That's important. You can ask more questions about that later. But he does clearly feel really bad. So in verse 4, he returns the 30 pieces of silver uh, to the Jewish leaders in the temple. He confesses his sin and he admits that he's betrayed innocent blood. Like that's at least something, isn't it? The Jewish leaders, on the other hand, their hearts seem to be completely hardened to the evil that they're committing. What's this to us, they say? That's your responsibility. As you'll see in a second that the Jewish leaders are uh, completely kind of fastidious about keeping laws about uh, money given to the temple, Uh, but here they couldn't care less about condemning Jesus' innocent blood to death. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus condemned them for back in Matthew 23. Judas can't believe what's going on. He just chucks the 30 pieces of silver at them in the temple. That would have been quite the scene. And then in verse 5, tragically, rather than... Rather than truly repenting of his sin and running to Christ, the one true judge, to receive forgiveness and mercy and grace for his sins, rather than doing that, there's a sense in which Judas makes himself the judge, doesn't he? And let's face it, when you're the judge of your own life, 
Sometimes you just can't forgive yourself for what you've done. I think that's where Judas is at. And so he sentences himself to death. Now verses 6 to 10 are a little bit confusing. I'm going to skim at a little, uh, but they're partly confusing because Matthew here and, and Luke in the book of Acts both have an account of Judas's death and they're a little bit different. Uh, and it gets a little bit confusing. So in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, uh, Luke says that Judas goes uh, with this money and he buys a field, then he falls in the field. It's all pretty gruesome. His kind of intestines spill out. There's blood and gore, you know, uh, and that's why it's called the field of blood. Right? That's Acts 1. Matthew here, on the other hand, says that Judas throws the money into the temple Uh, that Judas goes away and hangs himself, and then the leaders have the money, and they go and buy the field with this blood money, as it's called, and that's why it's called the field of blood. It's hard to know, uh, but maybe the truth is somehow a combo of both. You know, perhaps Judas throws the money into the temple, then he goes away and hangs himself, he hangs, then he does fall in the field, maybe the rope breaks or something, so that's, you know, that part of the story. Then the Jewish leaders are like, oh, gee, we've got this money, this blood money, we don't want to be linked to that. So, coincidentally, in the plan of God, they go and buy the same field, and they, maybe they even buy it in Judas's name, because they don't want to be linked to it. I don't know, we don't know for sure, it's all speculation. But what we do know for sure is that the field that they buy is called the potter's field. Now, we don't know why exactly. Probably it was where the local potters went to gather their clay. Maybe they'd run out of clay, so, hey, it's time to sell it. And in verses 9 and 10, Matthew sees the purchase of this field as fulfilling two prophecies in the Old Testament. First, there's a prophecy from, if you've got a Bible with footnotes, you'll see the the links there. Uh, First, it's Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Uh, There, Zechariah says that he throws 30 pieces of silver into the house of the Lord to the potter. So so when these chief priests buy the potter's field, it's like they're throwing money to the potter. That that seems to be what Matthew's saying. They're fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah. But if if you look at verses 9 and 10, who does Matthew say says this? He says it's Jeremiah, doesn't he? So why is that? Well, probably because in Jeremiah chapter 19, Jeremiah also bought a field and he also separately visited a potter. So it seems like Matthew, kind of with his Old Testament kind of knowledge, remember he doesn't have the Old Testament in front of him like we do, he's kind of heard it in the temple and he's recalling these two prophecies from the Old Testament and he's kind of mixed them together and saying this incident is fulfilling both of these prophecies from the Old Testament. Probably Jeremiah 19's foremost in his mind, which is why he says, Jeremiah says this. Anyway, I'm sure that's of lots of interest to all of you. I put that in there for those who are confused about those details. So where does this fit in the narrative? It's saying right before Jesus is put on trial before the Romans and sentenced to death, Judas puts himself on trial and sentences himself to death. I think that's why it's placed here in Matthew's Gospel. So in the last part of the passage, in verses 11 to 26, Jesus is on trial before the Roman authorities. We can't kind of look at this kind of in all the details. I want you to notice three main things in this section. The first is, 
Uh, it's important to know that the name Barabbas in verse 16 literally means son of the father, right? Bar is son and Abba uh, is father, so Barabbas means son of the father. Also, it's really interesting in the pas- this passage, we're supposed to compare and contrast Jesus Christ, the eternal son of the father, and Jesus Barabbas, the son of the father. So what are the differences and similarities between Jesus and Barabbas? Well, that leads to the second thing, which is that both of them, they have in common a passionate desire to establish God's kingdom. So in verse 16, we see that Barabbas was a well-known prisoner. And if you read Mark 15, verse 7, you'll see uh, that he's a well-known prisoner because he's he's in prison because he's an insurrectionist. Barabbas was a Jewish freedom fighter. Someone who resented the Roman oppression of the Jews so much that he wanted to violently overthrow them and establish God's kingdom. And now, of course, Jesus is also passionate about establishing God's kingdom. He just wants to do it in a vastly different way. Jesus wants to establish God's kingdom because he is God's king, the Messiah. So you see in verses 11 to 13, he admits again before Pilate, as he did before Caiaphas, that he is the Messiah in his somewhat cryptic way, you know, that you have said so thing. Uh, But Jesus is going to establish God's kingdom, not through the power of the sword, as Barabbas thinks, but through the power of his cross. That's how he'll establish God's kingdom. Uh, So there's a bit of an irony in this section, because uh, the reality is, uh, the reality is, uh, if Pilate condemns Barabbas, he puts an end to Barabbas' mission. Barabbas won't be able to violently overthrow the Romans and supposedly establish God's kingdom. But if Pilate condemns Jesus to death, he only succeeds in advancing Jesus' mission because Jesus' death on the cross is the very means by which he'll establish God's kingdom. So that's the similarity between Jesus and Barabbas. Well, what they have in common is that they're both passionate about establishing God's kingdom. They just want to do it in vastly different ways. Uh, Which leads to the big difference between Jesus and Barabbas, uh, which is that Jesus is innocent, uh, but Barabbas is guilty. Uh, Jesus' innocence is pretty clear in this passage. You'll see in verse uh, verse 18 uh, that Pilate knows the Jewish authorities have only handed Jesus over uh, out of self-interest. In verse 19, that there's a real sense, uh, well, Pilate's wife says, don't have anything to do with this guy. A lot of trouble would have been solved if, if Pilate listened to his wife. So note that if you're married, uh, if you're a guy, just listen to your wife and, and lots of, maybe you won't crucify Jesus one day. Anyway, sorry, that, that was a joke too. But uh, so uh, the sense is, hey, this guy's innocent. Don't have anything to do with him. Uh, and then in verse 24, Pilate washes his hands Uh, Deep down, he knows Jesus is innocent. He he pretends, he acts as if he can wash his hands of Jesus' blood. Jesus is innocent, but Barabbas is clearly guilty. Mark 15 again says he's a well-known prisoner because in the process of trying to establish God's kingdom, he has murdered lots of people. Barabbas is no angel. So once again, we've got this idea of substitution in this passage. Jesus, the innocent son of the father, dies in the place of Barabbas, the guilty son of the father. 
Oh, so that's kind of the passage. Now, I, said, I started by saying that uh, sometimes for me, life really does feel like one giant courtroom. Right? A courtroom in which I'm constantly on trial before other people. I'm just, sorry, I, I'm a bit, I, I lost my spot in my notes. I went off my notes too much. That's good for the live stream, going to the millions. Uh, it's because I changed my order too much. Yeah, okay, I'm just going to go go off the fly. Anyway, so yeah, life feels like a situation when you're constantly on trial before others. And of course, if you're a Christian, uh, no doubt you experience all sorts of trials in life. And sometimes many of those trials seem uh, a whole lot bigger. Uh, but I think that the deepest trial is the trial of your faith. Uh, the trial that Peter experiences in that courtyard. When, you, when you're in a situation where uh, you, you want to identify as a Christian, you want to stand as a Christian, you want to speak up as a Christian, uh, but you fail dismally. And the reality is that Jesus knows we're going to fail. That's why this passage is here on one level. Right, Jesus knows that we're going to fail. That's why he gave his life for you on the cross. So if you're here this afternoon and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I know those moments of trial. I know that I should identify as a Christian and stand as a Christian and speak as a Christian, but I constantly fail. If that's you, I, want you to, I don't want you to beat yourself up. But I want you to remember that if you trust in Jesus' death on the cross in your place, you don't have to prove yourself to me or to anyone else. You don't have to prove yourself to God because if you trust in Jesus' death on the cross in your place, you are clothed in Jesus' innocence. By faith in him, he was clothed in, in your guilt and you are clothed in his innocence. So in God's eyes, no matter how many times you fail, you are completely innocent. And that is a wonderfully liberating truth. And I could, stop say, I could stop right there and just say, uh, we're called to be faithful to Jesus, we're not. Jesus was faithful, wonderful news, uh, kind of revel in God's grace. But the reality is that that wonderful news of God's grace to us in Christ should move us to want to stand firm in trial, should move us to, to want to honour Jesus, to identify with him, to stand for him, to speak for him. So how is that possible? That's where I want to finish. Uh, and I want to finish uh, by saying, like many years ago, Peter, uh, many years after this rather, Peter wrote a letter to some other Christians whose faith was on trial and he gave them advice on what they should do. So 1 Peter 3 verse 15, he says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason uh, for the hope that you have. So maybe see what Peter's saying. He's saying, when your faith is put on trial, don't fear other people, like Peter did with those servant girls in the courtyard. Don't fear other people. Fear Jesus. What does it mean to fear Jesus? It means to revere Jesus, to be in awe of Jesus, to allow the glory and greatness of Jesus to, to fill your vision, and to allow Jesus' voice to be the loudest voice you hear in that moment when your faith is on trial. Right? Because the reality is that the more deeply you revere Christ, you fear Christ as Lord, uh, the more you'll have a sense of freedom and boldness and confidence in your life. 
because your self-worth will no longer be attached to the verdict of other people in your life. It'll be attached to the verdict of Jesus. And it's wonderful when your self-worth is attached to the verdict of Jesus because his verdict is unchanging. His verdict was secured at the cross. It's not dependent on your moment-by-moment performance in life. His verdict, no matter how many times you fail, is that in him you are loved and holy and blameless and honoured secure in the presence of God, in his love forever. But the more deeply you understand that, the more you'll be liberated in those moments when you're on trial to stand for Jesus, to identify as a Christian uh, and to speak in his name. So if you feel like you're constantly failing when your faith's put on trial, uh, let me encourage you to allow the verdict of Jesus your Lord to be the loudest in your life. It's got to be louder than the verdict of everyone else. It's got to be louder than your own verdict. It's as you do that, when your faith's put on trial, bit by bit, you will actually be able to identify with Jesus, speak for Jesus, stand for Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, We're very conscious uh, that uh, often uh, we are just like Peter and Judas, Uh, failing when our faith is put on trial. Uh, We praise you, uh, Lord Jesus, that you you succeeded where we failed. Uh, We praise you that you died where we should have died. And we pray that we would be moved by your wonderful grace to us, uh, secure that you love us, that we're holy and blameless in your sight, and therefore we uh, can be free, uh, knowing that you, the one who matters most, is pleased with us, and therefore we don't have to please everyone else all the time. Uh, Please help us with this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.